Section 7 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 24. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 24. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labry. Section 7. Escape of the Dustin Family. The history of no people in the world is fuller of stirring and thrilling incidents than that of our North American Indians. The following historical account of the remarkable escape of the Dustin family was prepared a few years ago for the American Magazine of Useful Knowledge. The writer, who he is we know not, indulges in some eloquent denunciations against Mrs. Dustin for taking the life of her captors when she was about to flee from her captivity. These denunciations we cannot endorse, except to a very limited extent. The destruction of the Indians was the only possible means of her safety. Had she fled while they were sleeping, she could not have gone far before she would have been overtaken, and at once put to death, and probably with extreme tortures. It seems more difficult to find an excuse for her destruction of the children, except in the general sentiment which unfortunately prevailed at that day, regarding the savage tribes more as wild beasts of prey than as human beings. Whatever opinions may be formed, however, by those who moralize upon the subject, it is a passage of our early history full of deep and affecting interest. Goodman Dustin and his wife, somewhat less than a century and a half ago, dwelt in Haverhill, at that time a small frontier settlement in the province of Massachusetts Bay. They had already added seven children to the King's Liege subjects in America, and Mrs. Dustin, about a week before the period of our narrative, had blessed her husband with an eighth. One day in March 1698, when Mr. Dustin had gone forth about his ordinary business, there fell out an event which had nearly left him a childless man and a widower besides. An Indian war party, after traversing the trackless forest all the way from Canada, broke in upon their remote and defenseless town. Goodman Dustin heard the war whoop and alarm, and being on horseback, immediately set of full speed to look after the safety of his family. As he dashed along, he beheld dark wreaths of smoke eddying from the roofs of several dwellings near the roadside, while the groans of dying men, the shrieks of affrighted women, and the screams of children pierced his ear all mingled with the horrid yell of the raging savages. The poor man trembled, 
yet spurred on so much the faster, dreading that he should find his own cottage in a blaze, his wife murdered in her bed, and his little ones tossed into the flames. But drawing near the door, he saw his seven elder children of all ages, between two years and seventeen, issuing out and running down the road to meet him. The father only bade them make the best of their way to the nearest garrison, and without a moment's pause, flung himself from his horse and rushed into Mrs. Dustin's bedchamber. The good woman, as we have before hinted, had lately added an eighth to the seven former proofs of her conjugal affection, and she now lay with the infant in her arms, and her nurse, the widow Mary Neff, watching by her bedside. Such was Mrs. Dustin's helpless state when her pale and breathless husband burst into the chamber, bidding her instantly to rise and flee for her life. Scarcely were the words out of his mouth when the Indian yell was heard, and staring wildly out of the window, Goodman Dustin saw that the bloodthirsty foe was close at hand. At this terrible instant, it appears that the thought of his children's danger rushed so powerfully upon his heart that he quite forgot the still more perilous situation of his wife, or, as is not improbable, he had such knowledge of the good lady's character as afforded him a comfortable hope that she would hold her own, even in a contest with a whole tribe of Indians. However that might be, he seized his gun and rushed out of doors again, meaning to gallop after his seven children and snatch up one of them in his flight, lest his whole race and generation should be blotted from the earth in that fatal hour. With this idea, he rode up behind them, swift as the wind. They had, by this time, got about forty rods from the house, all pressing forward in a group, and though the younger children tripped and stumbled, yet the older ones were not prevailed upon, by fear or death, to take to their heels and leave these poor little souls to perish. Hearing the tramp of hooves in their rear, they looked round, and espying Goodman Dustin, they all suddenly stopped. The little ones stretched out their arms, while the elder boys and girls, as it were, resigned their charge into his hands, and all the seven children seemed to say, Here is our father, now we are safe. But if ever a poor mortal was in trouble, and perplexity, and anguish of spirit, that man was Mr. Dustin. He felt his heart yearn toward these seven poor, helpless children, as if each were singly possessed of his whole affections. For not one among them all but had some peculiar claim to their dear father's love. There was his firstborn. There, too, the little one, who, till within a week past, had been a baby. There was a girl with her mother's features, and a boy, the picture of himself, and another, 
in which the looks of both parents were mingled. There was one child whom he loved for his mild, quiet, and holy disposition, and another whom he loved not less for his rough and fearless spirit, and who, could he live to be a man, would do a man's part against these bloody Indians. Goodman Dustin looked at the poor things, one by one, and with yearning fondness he looked at them all together. He then gazed up to heaven for a moment, and finally waved his hand to his seven beloved ones. Go on, my children, said he calmly. We will live or die together. He reined in his horse and caused him to walk behind the children, who, hand in hand, went onward, hushing their sobs and wailings, lest these sounds should bring the savages upon them. Nor was it long before the fugitives had proof that the red devils had found their track. There was a curl of smoke from behind the huge trunk of a tree. A sudden and sharp report echoed through the woods, and a bullet hissed over Goodman Dustin's shoulder and passed above the children's heads. The father, turning half round on his horse, took aim and fired at the skulking foe with such effect as to cause a momentary delay of the pursuit. Another shot and another whistled from the covert of the forest. But still the little band pressed on, unharmed, and the stealthy nature of the Indians forbade them to rush boldly forward in the face of so firm an enemy as Goodman Dustin. Thus he and his seven children continued their retreat, creeping along, as Cotton Mather observes, at the pace of a child of five years old, till the stockades of a little frontier fortress appeared in view, and the savages gave up the chase. We must not forget Mrs. Dustin in her distress. Scarcely had her husband fled from the house ere the chamber was thronged with the horrible visages of the wild Indians, bedaubed with paint and besmeared with blood, brandishing their tomahawks in her face and threatening to add her scalp to those that were already hanging at their girdles. It was, however, their interest to save her alive, if the thing might be, in order to exact a ransom. Our great-great-grandmothers, when taken captive in the old times of Indian warfare, appear, in nine cases out of ten, to have been in pretty much such a delicate situation as Mrs. Dustin. Notwithstanding which, they were wonderfully sustained through long, rough, and hurried marches amid toil, weariness, and starvation, such as the Indians themselves could hardly endure. Seeing that there was no help for it, Mrs. Dustin rose, and she and the widow Neff, with the infant in her arms, followed their captors out of doors. 
As they crossed the threshold, the poor babe set up a feeble wail. It was its death cry. In an instant, an Indian seized it by the heels, swung it in the air, dashed out its brains against the trunk of the nearest tree, and threw the little corpse at the mother's feet. Perhaps it was the remembrance of that moment that hardened Hannah Dustin's heart when her time of vengeance came. But now nothing could be done but to stifle her grief and rage within her bosom and follow the Indians into the dark gloom of the forest, hardly venturing to throw a parting glance at the blazing cottage where she had dwelt happily with her husband and had borne him eight children, the seven of whose fate she knew nothing, and the infant whom she had just seen murdered. The first day's march was fifteen miles, and during that and many succeeding days, Mrs. Dustin kept pace with her captors, for, had she lagged behind, a tomahawk would at once have sunk into her brains. More than one terrible warning was given her. More than one of her fellow captives, of whom there were many, after tottering feebly, at length sank upon the ground. The next moment the death groan was breathed, and the scalp was reeking at an Indian's girdle. The unburied corpse was left in the forest till the rites of sepulture should be performed by the autumnal gales, strewing the withered leaves upon the whitened bones. When, out of danger of immediate pursuit, the prisoners, according to Indian custom, were divided among different parties of the savages, each of whom were to shift for themselves. Mrs. Dustin, the widow Neff, and an English lad fell to the lot of a family consisting of two stout warriors, three squaws, and seven children. These Indians, like most with whom the French had held intercourse, were Catholics, and Cotton Mather affirms on Mrs. Dustin's authority that they prayed at morning, noon, and night, nor ever partook of food without a prayer, nor suffered their children to sleep till they had prayed to the Christian's God. Mather, like an old, hard-hearted, pedantic bigot, as he was, seems trebly to exult in the destruction of these poor wretches on account of their popish superstitions. Yet what can be more touching than to think of these wild Indians in their loneliness and their wanderings, wherever they went among the dark, mysterious woods, still keeping up domestic worship with all the regularity of a household at its peaceful fireside? They were traveling to a rendezvous of the savages somewhere in the northeast. One night, being now above a hundred miles from Haverfield, the red men and the women and the little red children and the three pale faces, Mrs. Dustin, the widow Neff, 
and the English lad made their encampment and kindled a fire beneath the gloomy old trees on a small island in Contocook River. The barbarians sat down to what scanty food Providence had sent them and shared it with their prisoners as if they had all been the children of one wigwam and had grown up together on the margin of the same river within the shadow of the forest. Then the Indians said their prayers, the prayers that the Romish priests had taught them, and made the sign of the cross upon their dusky breasts and composed themselves to rest. But the three prisoners prayed apart, and when their petitions were ended, they likewise lay down with their feet to the fire. The night wore on, and the light and cautious slumbers of the red men were often broken by the rush and ripple of the stream, or the groaning and moaning of the forest, as if nature were wailing over her wild children. And sometimes, too, the little redskins cried in sleep, and the Indian mothers awoke to hush them. But a little before break of day, a deep, dead slumber fell upon the Indians. See, cries Cotton Mather, triumphantly, if it prove not so. Up rose Mrs. Dustin, holding her own breath to listen to the long, deep breathing of her captors. Then she stirred the widow Neff, whose place was by her own, and likewise the English lad, and all three stood up, with the doubtful gleam of the decaying fire hovering upon their ghastly visages as they stared round at the fated slumberers. The next instant, each of the three captives held a tomahawk. Hark! That low moan! as one in a troubled dream. It told a warrior's death pang. Another, another, and the third half-uttered groan was from a woman's lips. But, oh, the children! Their skins are red, yet spare them, Hannah Dustin, spare those seven little ones for the sake of the seven that have fed at your own breast. Seven, quoth Mrs. Dustin to herself, Eight children have I borne, And where are the seven? And where is the eighth? The thought nerved her arm, And the copper-colored babes Slept the same dead sleep With their Indian mothers. Of all that family, Only one woman escaped, Dreadfully wounded, and fled shrieking into the wilderness, and a boy, whom it is said Mrs. Dustin had meant to save alive, but he did well to flee from the raging tigress. There was little safety for a redskin when Hannah Dustin's blood was up. The work being finished, Mrs. Dustin laid hold of the long black hair of the warriors, and the women, and the children, and took all their tin scalps and left the island, which bears her name to this very day.
according to our notion, it should be held accursed for her sake. Would that the bloody old hag had been drowned in crossing Contocook River, or that she had sunk over head and ears in a swamp and been there buried till summoned forth to confront her victims at the day of judgment, or that she had gone astray and been starved to death in the forest, and nothing ever seen of her again, save her skeleton with the ten scalps twisted round it for a girdle. But on the contrary, she and her companions came safe home and received the bounty on the dead Indians, besides liberal presents from private gentlemen and fifty pounds from the governor of Maryland. In her old age, being sunk into decayed circumstances, she claimed, and we believe, received a pension as a further price of blood. This awful woman, and that tender-hearted yet valiant man, her husband, will be remembered as long as the deeds of old times are told round a New England fireside. But how different is her renown from his. End of Section 7 Read by Carrie Adams Your Book Voice At Mesa, Arizona on the 21st of November, 2021.